When you notice that your kids are depressed or anxious, what do you do? Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me on Empowerment Solutions today. And I think we are all like, you know, sitting here wanting to have solutions for the kids that are struggling. And it's so great to have the parenting expert today on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I really had made a list of all the things that I noticed uh, my parents' clients are struggling with. So it's kind of fun. I knew this uh, time will come where I can ask you all these questions. So you have to buckle up because there are some challenges that I wonder what you come up with. <laughs> but to start with, uh, I said at the beginning of um, you know the intro that there are so many kids these days struggling with anxiety and depression. And uh, it's just really mind boggling to see that this is something that I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I didn't even know what anxiety really was besides maybe on Halloween. But now it's a daily experience for so many young beings. Do you know why that is? What's, what's your theory about that? Well, I think there's a number of factors. Um, and I'm a parenting expert, I'm a social worker. so. I think one of the main reasons, and it's really interesting, is that parenting has really shifted. The way that we parent has changed a lot in the 20, I guess, 25 or 30 years. And parents adore their children. They love their children. And there's all kinds of conflicting parenting advice. But, you know, when we were kids, it was mostly what was called a parent-centered model. And there were some things that weren't fabulous about that, but kids knew the hierarchy. They knew that adults were in charge. They knew that you know, they listen to their teacher and you really didn't see when you were a little kid, people acting out in class. If you did, you were like, oh, what's going to happen? Like there was just this solid sense of hierarchy. Um, and there were some not great things about that. Kids were spanked and all kinds of things happened that weren't okay. But there was a solid sense of, of this hierarchy for children. That really changed about 30 years ago where it became a child-centered model. So there was sort of polarizing advice, everything kind of flipped over and it became the children having a lot of say and a lot of control and, um, you know, parents well-meaning, uh, sort of giving their children more power than they actually could handle. And that was, that was done in a loving way. That was, you know, there was a whole sort of campaign about timeouts are not nice and let kids make decisions and it should be uh, discussion-based everything. And what I think happens is the way that parenting is supposed to be mimics the structure of the brain, right? So you have your frontal lobe, the part of the brain that inhibits and organizes and prioritizes and switches attention and does all of those things and takes perspective. Then you have the midbrain that freaks out and gets upset and gets scared and gets terrified. And it's the job of the frontal lobe to mitigate and to work against that, or they work in, in integration actually. And I think when kids had too much power, um, they don't want it. I mean, we can discuss this, but what ends up happening is they get more afraid. So the, the actual feeling of having that frontal lobe, so the, the parents are really the frontal lobe. I always say to parents, you're not actually a parent. You're a substitute frontal lobe. That's your job. Your child doesn't have a fully formed frontal lobe yet. They will when they're about 25 and up. And so until that time, your job is to love them like crazy and be their frontal lobe, help them make those decisions. So I think what sort of happened on one level is that kids, um, 
have too much power and they they know it and they feel like they 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 feel in, afraid. So the analogy that I'll give is, let's say you're on an airplane and it's a scary, turbulent, bouncy, bumpy flight and you are petrified. And the captain decides he's gonna wander down the aisle and go, hey everybody, what do you think? We can do 28,000 feet, we could try 30. I could try going around the storm. What would you do? You'd panic, right? Are you kidding me? You're flying the plane, you're asking me, I'm a passenger. Or for the sake of argument, we could say the captain's in there. She's yelling and screaming, why is this? Why isn't the control tower answering me? What's going on here? How are you gonna feel in that seat? Terrified, right? So children look to us and you want to be loving and you want to send these loving, compassionate limits, but children feel safe when they know that they're not in charge. So I think that's one thing. You could actually see it in children's TV shows. I don't think they watch TV anymore. I don't know what they do now. They do all kinds of stuff online. But if you think about programming a few years ago, um, all the adults were silly, silly, stupid, idiotic people who didn't know anything. And the kids kind of had all the answers. There was, there was this sort of cultural idea and I really noticed as a therapist that anxiety started to spike then. I saw another huge spike, of course, in 2011, where about 50% of kids started having smartphones of their own. So smartphones, social media, video games, you know, constant exposure to dopamine, I think has had something to do with it. And I think parents love their children very, very much. And as behavior regulation became a problem, as anxiety became a problem, as parents became more anxious about how to help and love their kids, um, and lots of conflicting information. It's just a really tough time. And I, I definitely think even pre-pandemic, I was seeing pretty sky high rates of anxiety in, in my caseload for sure. That's a really interesting perspective. So, I mean, when you say frontal lobe and, you know, being kind of the pilots, you're also talking about boundaries. And, uh, I mean, that is something certainly that a lot of adults looking back admit well i'm so glad my parents had boundaries because if not probably things would be really not as pretty now but what i'm wondering is you say they gave the kids too much power parents gave the kids too much power it's too kid-centered but why is that is it because the parents feel like i don't want to be like my old man and just you know treat my child so bad or is it that it's so much easier just to let the kids do their thing because we are too busy or what what yeah. brought us to that place great question and i think it's a combination i think there's definitely a, a polarizing there's a sort of pendulum i didn't like feeling you know children should be seen and not heard and i didn't feel it you know, like feeling like i didn't have power when i was a child to some degree so when i'm a parent i'm going to do it very very differently but whenever you swing too far, you miss some important things that are valuable on both sides, mm. right? So you need to have that center where there are limits. Limits are love. So when children have parents that are, you know, unavailable and uninterested and distant and not telling them when to go to bed and do their homework and those things, that child feels unloved. Doesn't anyone care? Like, who's going to tell me to go to bed? So there's really a feeling of not being seen. Um, and when there are limits, the children feel, feel the child feels seen and feels loved. Now, if those limits are delivered in a state of fear or anger by the parent, then that can be traumatic. That can be upsetting. That's not usually as effective. But when a limit is delivered with love, you know what? I love you enough to be mad at me. But the answer is no, you're not eating, you know, that cake before dinner. You can be mad at me if you want. I know it looks delicious and I love you, but that's not happening with this kind of solid, loving energy. That's exactly what the child needs. And that's what I mean by being your child's frontal lobe, right? You mm. really are a 
the frontal lobe as a parent? Well, one of the things that I know parents often tell me is that when they try to create a boundary, that especially the you know preteens, teens are having big hissy fits, and there is just not a lot of you know love between bows. And mm -hmm. then sometimes the kids come to me and say, "I hate my parents. They're just so mean, and they don't understand me, and they always say no." And so how do you find a compromise? How do you, because this can actually be really seen more as against than as a for uh, the child's yeah. behavior. Yes, absolutely. Well, and that's always the, if you think about the brain itself, think about our own brain. We have the frontal lobe that says, oh, we would really like to say that to that person, but I don't want to hurt their feelings or I don't want to get fired, right? Or, oh, I'd love to eat that whole thing, but that doesn't make any sense. Or I'd love to buy that, but I don't have the money. We are constantly regulating and setting limits on ourselves all the time. That's what the frontal lobe's job is. It's to mitigate and make decisions and take perspective and inhibit impulses and all of those things. And what's the midbrain's job to do? That, I need it. I gotta have it now. That could kill me. I'm scared. Like it's, it's the midbrain's job to freak out and it's the frontal lobe's job to integrate and balance and mitigate, right? So as we set limits for our children, um, we're creating a boundary where there's lots of room for them to be happy and be kids and make their own decisions. You can make, you can have what's called perceived choice. Hey, you can't do that, but you can do this or this, which one looks good to you, right? Um, and when you can do that, you'll see anxiety. Will, and it is not the exclusive cause of anxiety, but I've worked with many, many children who are incredibly anxious. And when the parents kind of relax, and actually learn how to set boundaries in this loving, loving way, the child's anxiety goes down. It definitely goes down. So their job is to push back. You're mean, you're crazy. Nobody else's parents do that. How come you're so mean? And your job is to mirror. We'll get into that in a moment. Really connect, really understand, really have compassion for, of course you want to do that. I would want to do that too if I was 15, but there's no adults there. And I love you way too much to send you into a situation where you're in danger. And what I've found in my practice is when you parent from that place, it's no, they know, and they'll stomp and they'll slam the door. And literally a few minutes later, they'll come back and, okay, what are we doing? Like it, it, the, the initial explosion, which usually, well, it's often designed really for the child to go, are you sure you want to do this to me? Cause I'm going to make this ugly. If you don't let me do this, it's not going to be pretty. And so what ends up happening, especially with them, um, kids who have a very strong uh, counter will, kids who are really kind of sassy and feisty, as they push back, they, they wear the parent down. And then the parent's like, you know, fine, just do it. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and then you've just created a, this power imbalance where the kid screams all the time to get something the parent bends right away, or the parent overcompensates sometimes, you know what, this is ridiculous. This is getting, this is out of control. And you end up sort of swinging all over the place. So the answer is really, and connected parenting is really built on this, how to find, I call it standing in a canoe, like how to find that beautiful balance in the middle where your child has independence and freedom and an opportunity to figure out who they are, but you've created safe containment around them, right? So they know what the rules are and they feel safe enough and they can go about the business of being kids or teenagers and feel deeply understood and deeply loved and actually safe. And if your child isn't ticked off at you some of the time, you're probably not being a very good frontal lobe. Mm. I mean, the reason why six-year-olds don't have apartments, they don't know when to go to bed. They don't know when to brush their teeth. And there's a reason why 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds aren't ready to be full adults on their own. Um, and it's a very challenging, um, parenting is hard. 
it's really, really tough. It is a tough job. And if you have a kid that has any kind of anxiety, ADHD, um, gifted kids are really difficult, kids on the spectrum, kids who've experienced trauma, it's even harder. It's a tough job. Well, the thing that I find always interesting about, you know, the focus of parenting on the child, that sometimes we are forgetting that, well, maybe there is actually also something in the parent that needs to be addressed. Now you talk about boundaries and and being the, the frontal lobe, but how many parents are in their minds thinking, well, my child need to yet already get set up to go to Harvard or Yale. We have to really be clear that we have a very you know tight schedule, extracurricular activity, and where there is so much pressure on the performance side and on the achieving side with good intentions from the parent side, but they are, projecting their ambitions or their hopes onto the child. So isn't it also important to have the parental boundaries inside and check and not pushing too much on them? Yes, absolutely. In so many ways. It's interesting often with parents, especially parents who really want their, who are high achievers themselves and want their kids to excel, it sort of becomes this, um, you sort of project on your child, the person, the, the things you wish you would have done. Right. And it, that never works. Um, and again, if it's coming from a place of fear, you've got to do this, you have to succeed. You can feel that energy that's that's never going to work particularly well when it's internal and it's intrinsic with children. That's much better. It's usually better, I'm sure, as you know, to focus on the effort rather than the end result. Right. That's where you end up getting more growth. That's the growth mindset where kids actually are not afraid to take risks and they can push themselves. Um, and I've certainly found too that, you know, childhood trauma that parents have had, how you were parented um, has a huge impact on your parenting. And, and that doesn't mean you can't parent well, it just means you need to be aware of those programs and how are they running and when are they running? And is this about me or is this about my child in this moment? The other thing I find too, is if you're parenting in a couple, you'll often see uh, like that polarity happening, right? That that polarization happening. So one parent instinctively is like, you know what? We need to understand why this behavior is happening. And my child's having a really hard time or they're hungry or they're sad or, you know, this happened and this is why they're behaving this way. And the other parent often instinctively knows there needs to be limits. This is ridiculous. These kids are out of control. We've got to set some rules around here. And then what ends up happening is the parents polarize and they compensate for what they believe is a weakness in the other one's parenting. Well, he's too tough, so I have to be softer, or she's too tough and I have to be softer, or I, or I need to be tough because she lets them away with everything. But the truth is, and I'll end the argument right here, you're both right. You're both right. You need loving limits. You need some structure. Children thrive on structure. They're so happy when they know when the boundaries are, where the boundaries are and that they're set in a loving way but they also need compassion and understanding and love to actually pull that individual forward into their potential, into the truth of who they are. That's when kids excel, really. Do you have a sense that we talk less with our children than in the past because there's just less time or more distraction? You know, that's an interesting question. I would almost say we talk to our kids more. Like, I think parents 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, they'd watch TV, get out, I'm watching the news. And kid, we'd toddle out, we wouldn't feel wounded, we wouldn't feel hurt. I don't remember feeling terrible that my parents didn't play with me. They spent some time with me, but there was kind of this very clear sense of what adults did and what children did. And we were allowed to be bored. 
as children. We figured out what to do. We also had the privilege of being able to play outside. And, you know, that's it. Bye. See you at dinner. And then the dinner bell rang or your parents yelled on the front porch and you came running. There was freedom and autonomy and wonderful things that happened, I think, during those times. I mean, there were certainly things that weren't so great, but we children learned how to play and they learned how to be heard and they learned how to assert and they learned when to be quiet and they learned what worked and they all taught each other. Play is how children practice to be adults. And I think now so many kids are in programs and they're so, they don't play on their own. And if they do get into a scuffle, an adult comes in right away and helps them figure it out. So I think there's a little bit of loss there. Um, and I think kids, parents do talk to their kids, but a lot of it is what I call interviewing for pain. Are you okay? What happened today? What went wrong? What, what do you mean that happened? <laughs> and you can hear in my voice this kind of fear-based um, conversation. And what, what connected parenting is all about really is helping parents have loving, meaningful, deep conversations using language as medicine, really to help your children make good decisions, intrinsically understand what's going on, improve communication and build resilience. So I think we can talk to our kids, but it's the quality of those conversations mm. that we really focused on. And that's so important. And I think it's uh, important also to see this as a continuation, uh, whether it's about boundaries, that there really needs to be a consistency with that and not just sometimes and all over the place. And yep. the same thing with a connection. But I think that's so interesting what you say about, you know, learning how to use words as kind of a medicine. What do you do with a child who just has been shut down, don't want to talk, not interested? That's, you know, my business. How do you, with that connected parenting, uh, open them gradually up again? Well, so exactly like this. Every child is always communicating, always. There's never not communication their arms are folded, they're looking away, they're rolling their eyes, they're, they're hiding, they're always telling you something. So even with a child who's fully shut down, you use the body language as the language, right? So I don't know exactly what you're feeling, but you look like you rolled your eyes when I said that, so that looked like you were not happy with what I just said there, right? So you just have these little moments where you have a connection and the child feels like, yeah, that's what that eye roll was about. Maybe dad's ready to understand what's going on with me. And you build on that and you build on that. I also work with parents too, where you don't focus so much on, you know, needing them to tell you something, or you focus more on incidental stuff, like just little moments, little moments where you, I don't know, you put your hands on their cheeks and you just look right in their eyes, or you show them a baby picture, or you can play with, you have the toys talking to each other. And you're really saying what you want to say to the child through the toy. There's lots of ways to deeply, deeply connect in ways that don't actually arouse the anxiety. Um, so the child pulls back, um, but they're always communicating always. And you can, you can always choose your language and make your language medicine. The challenge is just not to take it personally and not feel like, you know, okay, this is a sign that I'm a bad parent or, you know, how do I get my child love me again? And, all of those inner needs as a parent that, you know, can really be in the way to form this connection and, and manage those things is probably also part of the work. Absolutely. And you're, and you're right. And that actually can lead back to childhood stuff, right? What, what are our patterns that are being tripped off by somebody ignoring me or someone disrespecting me? I mean, nobody likes being disrespected, but it can be very triggering for a parent who, you know, based on their history was ignored as a child 
or had to do incredible things to get attention in the family. So part of it is just having that sort of witness state where you're witnessing, ah, I've noticed this, one of my children always gets me more mad than this child. What, what does this child do that really triggers me? Where's the hot spot in me there? And that's where a lot of the, the work is. And sometimes it's helpful to work with someone on your own individually. And sometimes you can just gently be aware of those patterns. And when I talk a lot with our with the parents we work with around alignment. So when your heart and your head, when you're in brain heart, heart coherence, when your head and your heart are in agreement, you're probably going to step into a pretty powerful and loving parenting moment, right? If you're, and, and it's not to say that parents don't, of course, you're going to get mad. You're human, right? Kids are exhausting, <laughs> very frustrating, and they push back relentlessly on us, right? And one of our fallbacks is to yell, you know, it's a very popular parenting technique, but if it works, there'd be a lot of really well-behaved children in the world. Like it just doesn't work. And you can think about like, when have you ever been yelled at or screamed at? or bawled out and you've gone, oh, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's exactly what I needed. I'm gonna go fix that. Ever done that? Yelling never works. No, no, you end up feeling uh, attacked. And in those moments, the child or your midbrain takes over. The midbrain can't tell the difference between your mother yelling at you for leaving your backpack in the middle of the hall and a saber-toothed tiger that's chasing you down the the meadow, like it's the same thing to the midbrain, only the frontal lobe knows the difference. Right? What about getting attention or making the child get pay attention? So in what way? What do you mean? Well, let's say, for example, there is, you know, something really it's uh, close to the edge of the roof and almost falls down the oh, roof because it's different. dangerous. So that's then, different. No, but yeah. there is an example of yelling of, oh, wow, my nervous system all of a sudden wakes up. Is and there? Yes, yes. Bad behavior where the child also would need to wake up to realize the seriousness of the situation. That's a very good point. There are times where you have to watch out, look out, that's going to fall. Of course. But why did you leave your back in the middle of the hall? That's not going to have the same reaction, although the child is going to have the same limbic body reaction to that, right? Mm -hmm. So we think about non safety related emergency issues aside, using yelling as a way to, um, influence our children's behavior, of course, it's going to happen once well. It's not the end of the world. If you raise your child and never yelled, you'll mess them up anyway, because their boss is going to yell at them and they won't know what to do, right? A little bit, it happens. It's life. It's a natural consequence, but you just don't want to be using that as your primary way what? to manage your child's behavior, right? That's what, and not only that, the cortisol and the adrenaline that's pounding through our body as a parent, we don't, re we don't re calm down for half an hour, at least after yelling at our child and then the next kid does something, right? And the child also is limbically charged after an event like that. And what ends up happening is everybody's nervous system in the family is just on edge. Everyone is limbically charged and it's, I call it the chain of pain. So you yell at the kid, the kid yells at their sibling, that sibling yells at the other sibling, the sibling yells at you. And it's, you're just passing around that, that pain from person to person to person. And so it's really about finding a way to be strong and loving and neutral. And it's not easy to do this. This is not easy. But when you can parent in a loving, neutral way, that's where you have the greatest impact in, and the healthiest impact. So you get what's called healthy compliance from your children. They don't comply because they're scared. You're going to punish them and yell at them. They comply because, yeah, mom loves me. Dad loves me. It sucks, but I think they're right. And, and really, like kids are, are quite... I have kids all the time that tell me, 
you know, my parent never says what they mean. They say they're going to take things away and they don't. And it, that actually bothers kids. They won't tell their parent that. Mm -hmm. But they actually quite notice when parents don't actually follow through on things that they say they're going to follow through on. So yeah, yelling is, a, yelling is an interesting one. Um, and, it, and, it, and it definitely changes the, the biochemistry of the whole family when yelling becomes the, the language of the family. But you're right. Sometimes kids won't do what you want. They won't. And so there's a whole program that we offer at Connected Parenting on how to connect first and then how to very slowly, layer by layer, picking target behaviors, bringing organization back into the family through loving, listening, and through connection. Well, and I think that's also really a key to know that it takes time, that there is not a quick fix for that. It's really about building ultimately a trust foundation. So if your kids feel totally out of control or they feel anxious or they feel disconnected, chances are there is probably a lack of trust in the parent and trust is not built with one action. It's actually built with one action at a time for a longer period of time. And it probably will take really also sometimes trial and error to succeed, I can imagine. It does. It does. It is the hardest job you will ever do, but it's also the most rewarding. I mean, the highs that parenting can take you to, the love that you can feel for that other human being is is incredible. It's just a huge responsibility and it can be very tiring and exhausting. And I do think that children, and this is not a bad thing, I think kids are getting smarter and more aware and more knowledgeable and uh, you know, we sort of focus on, and this is not our, not every client has to fit this profile, but we work with a lot of kids, a lot of kids who are gifted and a lot of kids who are what I call gladiators. And these are kids who are just, they have a massive counter. Well, why? That makes no sense. Why would I follow that? I'm not doing what you, you're not the boss of me. They sort of born with this incredibly strong spirit that pushes back on everything. And I actually think those are the children who are going to save us all. We need them, okay? We need <laughs> children who can push back on, on paradigms and see things in a different way and challenge the status quo. But the responsibility is how do you bring a child like that into their fullness as an adult without them you know, being on the periphery or you know, ticking people off all the time or getting fired or getting kicked out of whatever? Um, it's a pretty big responsibility. So, And I think there's more and more kids like that that are, being, that are coming into the world today. Well, it's also interesting that there are more and more kids coming to the world that are questioning, you know, their sexuality, questioning their gender. And, and that is a huge topic for parents, which often really feels like too much overwhelming, don't know what to do. And then, of course, it now even enters politics. So do you have any advice for someone where a child simply feels unhappy with uh, the gender it's born or is questioning its sexuality early on? And, and what would you do? So it is happening a lot more. And I think with awareness and with, um, you know, more access to information and challenging, like, why do we do it this way? How come this is this way? How come this is this way for boys and this way for girls? I think there's a lot of sort of challenging paradigms that's happening all around. And so when this is happening with your child, the more you invest in the fear of it, no, you're not a boy, you're a girl, and, and all of those things, the more you're actually building, building that pendulum, the more you actually try to stop it, the more their sovereignty and independence and sense of self is strengthened. You're actually doing the opposite of what you think you're doing. 
when you try to set limits in that way. That's what I mean by limits being set from fear. You know, the parent goes through a lot. That's not how I saw you. That's, uh, they have some grieving to do. They have some, you know, they have to work through quite a few things when their child makes that decision. But at the end of the day, you're raising a human being. You want to raise a full, happy, healthy human being who can contribute to the world, not a damaged, scared person who doesn't feel good about who they are. So when you line up with love and love is always the constant, right? It's even a parent who's getting angry with their child for, you know, questioning their, their gender or how, whatever they're going through, that parent loves that child. They don't want to control that child and be mean to that child and ruin their child's life. They think they're helping their child, but how are you going to fit in in a world and you're going to look strange and you're going to have more pain than anybody would normally have. And why would you bring this upon yourself? And that's coming from fear. They love their child. They want their child to be happy. But they, that, that understanding that when it truly does come from a place of absolute love, not fear, then you're going to be guided. So if there is any behavior on that child, if they're trying it on, if they're experimenting and trying to figure it out and they're sort of lost in figuring out how can I be interesting? How can I, if it's behavioral at all, when you parent your child that way, they'll wake up one morning and go, yeah, I'm kind of over that. I'm good. Right. And if it re is real for them, it's really what's happening. Then how important is that to have a family that loves them no matter who they are, that is willing to care for them, that is having good, deep, loving conversations and has their child's back. So you're basically saying that it is important also to let the child experiment and not just say, well, sorry, you don't have a really good frontal lobe system yet. So I'm going to decide that this is just your emotions talking and I cannot let you have girls clothes on when you're a boy or something like that. It's this is not easy. This is not easy for, for families and, and, and depending on where you live in the world and your culture, it can be even harder. But the more you try to not let them do that, the more they're going to want to do that. I call it the Romeo and Juliet effect. Like you're, mm. you're creating a pendulum of energy on the other side. You can, I mean, you can in a loving way set limits around it if the child is, is able to do that. Hey, we're going here. Would you mind this? Like, and really, but, you know, talking to the child first about their feelings, if you just say, oh, it's your emotions, you don't know what you're doing. The child doesn't just apply it to that. They apply it to everything. So maybe nothing I feel makes sense. Maybe none of the emotions that I experience make any sense to my parent, which is, which is what brings us back to kind of the, the heart of connected parenting is that's where using language as medicine is so important. You don't have to agree with the person, but you have to get them. You have to mirror them. You have to connect with them. And maybe we'll, maybe I'll talk about my calm technique for a second. Would that make sense? Sure. So this is kind of the pillar technique with connected parenting. So it's actually a technique called mirroring, which is a therapy technique. It's not a parenting technique. I've taken it and adapted it to parenting. And it's really, it's actually attunement. It's tuning in and deeply, just for a moment, understanding what the other person's experience is. Not trying to change it, not trying to get them to believe you or understand you. It's about you understanding them in that moment. Your agenda, which is how are we gonna deal with this as a family? What's gonna happen? Why didn't you do your homework? That's over here. We get to bring it back. You're a frontal lobe. So you get to bring it back, but you don't start there. So that technique, which we're all really good at naturally, everybody knows how to do this with a baby, right? You pick up a baby and you go, oh my goodness, look at you, right? And oxytocin flows and endorphins flow. And it's this lovely biochemical magic that happens between parent and child, which is actually when most of brain development happens, by the way, it happens out of utero, not in. 
And that's actually how we're building our children's brains and we're giving them all they need to kind of establish them, their sense of self. So we're pretty good at that. So let's say you have a baby, four months old, they're getting out of the bathtub, they're crying and fussing. Nobody says to a four month old, what is the matter with you? You've had a bath every single night and nothing has happened. Why can't you just lie still while I dry you off? Nobody would say that to a four month old. What would they say? They'd say, oh my goodness, I know you're cold and this blank, this towel is kind of scratchy and the baby has no idea what you're saying. But the baby sees on your face a perfect representation of what they're feeling inside. So as soon as my face matches their emotion, endorphins, opiates, and oxytocin flood the brain. Oxytocin is an incredibly powerful hormone slash neurotransmitter that blocks cortisol, strengthens the immune system, speeds up neuroplasticity. Uh, you get the bounce back. So when you're doing that with another person, your brain and your body and your cells are bathed in that same biochemistry. Um, we do that quite naturally with a baby. Okay, so now you have a four-year-old that you know, won't get out of the bath or there's, we, now what do we do? Now, we don't mirror. We say, what are you doing? Get out of the bath, please. Mommy's getting very angry. I'm getting, I'm gonna count. I'm gonna start counting. One, two, three, three and a half. And the kid's running around and you're like, get back there. And the other kid's now running down the hall and it's chaos, right? So what we want to do, I feel like we lose that natural mirroring uh, instinct as soon as our children have language. So as soon as their language acquisition, we kind of drop that. So I teach parents how to keep that, even with teenagers. So you've got your four-year-old. They don't want to get out of the bath. You sit down beside them. You put your hand in the water. Ah, oh, now I know why you don't want to get out of this bath. It's like the best temperature. And when you get out, you're going to be all cold. And you're going to have that whole feeling where you're shivering. But you know what? You can't live in a bathtub. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about how we can get out of the bath. And I'm going to go over here and do something. And when I come back, do you think you're ready to get out of the bath? And 99% of kids are going to get out of the bath. They might stomp. They might say, oh, I don't like it. But they'll get out of the bath. The, the, you know, the smaller percent who are the gladiators might test. And we can, that's, that's a whole other conversation. And we help parents through that. And we certainly get them through it. And I would actually say that that's probably our biggest strength in connected parenting is we, our method often works where, um, where other methods don't work on those types of kids. Like it, it'll, the, the, the beautiful parenting methods out there that work in stunning, stunning ways, but there's a little subsection of the population of kids where you go ahead and try that on a gladiator. Mm. Be like, no, right? So you have to hold your ground and you have to do background mirroring and you have to stay neutral. And there's all kinds of stuff we would help you with if that kid wouldn't get out of the bath. Um, but for the ordinary sort of neurotypical child, it's magic. It's a superpower. It's it's absolutely stunning. How well, let's do the mirroring on a child who doesn't want to give up its phone, even though it's already 11 o'clock. It's a teenager. It's a 15-year-old teenager who is told no more screen time, but doesn't want to give up. Okay. So before we get to the acting out of that, there's a whole bunch of things that would have to happen in place. I would hope that as a parent, you've been doing a bunch of, of what I call chit chatter conversational mirroring. So when your teenager who often just wants to be in their room and be alone and you bug them and your voice bugs them and teenagers don't even know why I work with teenagers. Like, I don't know why my mother's voice just makes me mad. She hasn't even done anything, but her voice makes me mad. Teenagers are interested in autonomy, sovereignty, and independence. And parents are interested in safety, security, and getting their child ready to be an adult. And those two agendas often conflict. It's also a time where their frontal lobe is growing, but it's not fully grown. 
teenagers, there's no such thing as a teenager, really. That's a Western phenomenon. So in most parts of the world, you were a child and then you're an apprentice adult. So you're connected to the adults. You're trying to please the adults. You're pulled into the adult community and you're sort of nurtured into being an adult. In the West, that was thrown out like a long time ago. I think the word teenager was only coined in the 1950s. Um, and so then it turned into teenagers um, being oriented to each other, not their parent anymore. And now you can see how the frontal lobe thing is an issue, right? Because you've got a bunch of kids all supporting each other and talking to each other and not really paying much attention to what adults have to say. And there's not a fully formed frontal lobe among them, right? So you've got to keep that connection with your teenager because they still need you to be their frontal lobe, right? So you got all that happening. You would also be front loading. You wouldn't just walk into your kid's room and go, give me a phone. It's 11 o'clock, you should go to bed. There's barely a teenager on earth that would say, okay. Most of them is like, get out, I'm in the middle of something. Why do you always do this? Nobody else's parents does that. You're crazy. You're gonna get a conflict because they're doing something and you come in and demand something else. They don't like it anymore we would, than we would like it, right? When our kid demands something of us, we don't like it. We're like, don't you, where's dinner? make dinner like right we have all these 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 kind of conflicts with each other so you would have a contract ahead of time with your child that i love you enough for you to be mad at me but it's not good for your brain to be on the phone past 11 o'clock and by the way they are missing stuff because kids are up till two in the morning on their phones it's unbelievable uh and you say at 11 o'clock that phone goes downstairs in the charging station phones are a right a, a privilege not a right um, if the phone's not down there at 11 o'clock, you'll lose your phone for the next day. Not for two weeks, not for a month. That's a natural consequence. If you can't handle having your phone, you lose the privilege of having that phone the next day. You're mean. I hate you. I love you. I'm doing this because I love you. I love you for enough for you to be mad at me about this. This is how it is in our family. If you want your phone, this is the deal. Right. But you start with mirroring. I know your phone's important. I know stuff's going on, but I love you enough for you to be mad. You've got to get to sleep. It's important. Phone needs to be downstairs. So let's say that's all happened and the kid still is not putting their phone. Okay. So why don't we role play this? Can you be the teenager? <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. So we've done all that already and you're in the middle of something. There's a, there's a big thing going on. You like a girl or you're not going to tell me that, but there's something going on on this phone. It is incredibly important. And to a teenager, the social life is everything. It is everything. And that's just the way that it is developmentally. So imagine you were, I don't know, about to seal this amazing book deal or something, and you're on the phone and someone's like, get off, get off that phone right now. You've had, you've been on the phone enough. How would you handle it? Okay. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this two ways. The first way I'm going to do it is how a typical parent would do it, how 99% of us would approach it. And let's watch what happens to you as a teenager while I do that. And then let's try it the second way and see what happens. And you don't have to role play. It'll just kind of happen. Okay. So, um, honey. Give me the phone, please. Turn the phone off. It's no, why should I give you the phone? I, it's my phone? phone. I want to use it. It is my phone. I'm the one who pays for it. And I already told you that 11 o'clock is when you have to give me that phone. Hand it over, please. Right now. You're the right. only person who does that. All of my friends can be on the phone all the time. And you are just so strict. This is terrible. I don't care what they do in other people's houses. This is my house and I love you. And you need to put that phone away and you need to give it to me right now. Give it to me. I can't wait to be out of this house. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. And this is probably mild, right? Like a lot of teenagers would be like beside themselves at this point. Now me as the mother, 
I'm getting frustrated. I've driven this kid everywhere. I've paid for tutoring. I've given him piano lessons. I've loved him and given him organic food since the day he's born. And I'm asking for one thing, for that phone to be out of his room because I care about his brain. So you can see how our agendas are so vastly different here. So let's try this again a second way. Okay, so I'm going to apply the calm technique, which I'll actually break down in a second. So I'm going to apply the calm technique and I'd say, hey, honey, um, I just want to let you know it's 11 o'clock. And so what? I know. And you're on the phone. You're probably having awesome conversations and I'm driving you crazy, I realize. But do you remember we talked about having the phone down in the port to be being plugged in about 11? And I love you. I'm going to give you a couple more minutes, maybe five, 10 more minutes. And then do you think you could plug it downstairs for me? Ah, you always want to me to do this. This is so annoying. I know. I know. And you know what? If I was 17 or 16, however old you if I was your age and I'm in the middle of a conversation, I wouldn't want to turn it off either. It sucks. It really does. But I love you. And I really think it's important for you to get your sleep. And it's one of the rules in the house. And I know I mean, and I, but I love you enough for you to be mad at me. I need it to be downstairs in 10 minutes. Okay, bud. I know you can do it. Oh, okay. But I can't wait until I'm 18. I get it. And when you're 18, you're fully doing this on your own. I, I don't, I don't want to be doing this either. Right. So now how is the second one for you? Oh, it's definitely much more calming. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's happening biochemically, even though it's a role play, is as I connect with you, as I get you, oxytocin starts flowing, right? It biochemically de-escalates the person. It's a superpower. And by the way, you don't just use this on your kid. You can use this on your wife, your husband, your mother-in-law, your nasty neighbor, the person who thinks they took your, you took their parking spot. Like it's kind of a superpower to be able to do this. But it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of work. And as I say, it's a, it's a therapeutic technique. Um, so what did I do there? There are four things that I did. The first thing I did was like connect. I did not come in with my agenda. It's 11 o'clock, turn your phone off. I came in with a reminder, it's 11 o'clock, but I see that you're really engaged in something interesting, okay? So I engage first. The next thing I did was affect matching. I made sure that the look on my face was kind of similar to the look on your face. So when you were like, oh, I was like, I know. Like you have that kind of mirroring effect, right? Mm. And that's what releases the oxytocin. Um, and the third thing uh, is the language part. This is where I can choose my words. I can summarize, I can clarify, I can paraphrase, and I can wonder out loud. Those are the four things I can do all with that affect, right? So if the kid says, you're ridiculous, nobody else's parents do that, then I can paraphrase that and go, well, no wonder you're so ticked off. If everyone else's parent is saying they can be on the phone till two in the morning, I would be ticked off too. And I'm really sorry, but I love you. And I really think this is an important rule in our family, right? I can clarify. Well, okay, so tell me, like, why, why is it so important? What, like, why do you have to be on the phone? What's going on right now? And sometimes there's something really big going on. They're in the middle of an argument. They've got to solve something. They've got to fix something. Or, and to them, it's huge. It's absolutely huge to you. It's like, oh, teenagers, they won't remember this in five minutes. But to them, it's probably the most important thing that could be happening to them, right? Um, I can summarize. You know what? I know. I did this last week to you. When you're right in the middle of something, I came right in at the worst time and asked you to turn your phone off. So it's picking little details that prove to the person that you're really paying attention and you care, right? And then the final part of wondering out loud, that's not relevant to this scenario, but that would be you know, they freak out about something that's kind of minor. And then you're wondering if, you know, I'm wondering if this has to do with that party you didn't get invited to. 
or the fact that you found out yesterday that three of your friends got together and you weren't there. And that's really what's behind how angry you are right now. That's, that's the wondering out loud. And then when you pull all those elements together, that's the M you've mirrored. And this takes commitment. It takes practice. It's worth knowing how to do this. This will help you in multiple situations in your life. And it's really the thing that builds connection and allows you, you, one of your earliest questions in the interview is how do you, how do you set limits? How do you do that when they're mad and keep the connection? That's how. It certainly also will work for anxiety. I can imagine when someone really feels stressed out, spiraling in a panic, not wanting to go to school and just going yeah. through this calm method will literally calm them down. So it's, yeah. Fabulous. Where can people find out more about this method, about you, about Connected Parenting, all the wonderful things you offer? So, so you can go to connectedparenting.com. We've got all kinds of information there. We have a number of ways to help families. We, I have a team of, of uh, about 11 therapists that work with people all over the world. Um, it, based, some of them are based in Toronto. The rest are kind of based all over the place. Um, we have, I have my podcast, the Connected Parenting podcast, where for families who can't necessarily afford um, or it's just not in their budget right now. I give a lot of really important information in the podcast. I, I, my theory is we can change the world one family at a time if we can do this. Um, and then we have, I have another podcast also called the Mental Health Comedy Podcast where I co-host with Ed Krasnick, who's a comedian and we interview really well-known entertainers and comedians um, about their mental health and give them practical strategies on how to handle things like anxiety, depression, um, mood regulation issues. And it's a lot of fun and it's done with comedy, which is great. Um, we have online courses. So I have the online masterclass that actually takes you through This is just such a snippet of what we did today, but, um, the whole course and the whole curriculum, there's one version that's just, uh, online, that's just video. And I want parents to keep that forever. That doesn't disappear after 90 days or six months. You're a parent for life. You keep it for life. And then we have another version of the same course as a teen version and a kid's version. Um, and we have another version of that course where I'm more interactive with the community. So there's a closed Facebook group and also monthly coaching calls. So I'll, and it's so much fun to just have a bunch of parents on there from all over the world saying the exact same things about their kids. It's a lot of fun. Um, we also have something called the village, which is a membership program where people join and once a week, they meet with a connected parenting, at least two connected parenting therapists or coaches that are on the call supporting parents as they're trying to learn the technique. So there's lots of chance to role play and practice go through scenarios and then there's really practical support and uh, parenting advice. And then everybody helps each other also, which is amazing. And I just, I'm just launching a new online course for teenagers um, on procrastination because procrastination is a form of anxiety. Teenagers get themselves into a lot of trouble by procrastinating. Parents, you know, get very wrapped up and upset about it. And the course is for the teenager on how to rewire your brain for motivation instead of procrastination. And I, th I think that's everything. Wow. So there is a lot that we can really benefit from. Thank you so much for all these offers and making it easily available. So it's connectedparenting.com. Yes. Yes. Well, I could talk for many more hours with you. It's so much fun and so really insightful. But uh, fortunately, we have to complete today. But I hope you're going to come back onto Empowerment Solutions again. So thank you so much for being here.